as the kids go through the growth spurt, the match grades do go down and then they come back up afterwards. So if you're using match grades to decide whether or not you're going to be contracting a player, it's not just whether they're early on time or late, it's are they in the middle of the growth spurt because you don't want to pull the trigger on a kid because you really haven't got a clue what you're going to see at that point in time. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high performance sport. So it's been four years since I first got Sean Cumming on the Pacey Performance Podcast for an episode that was actually sponsored by the Football Association here in England, which is pretty cool. So in that episode, we chatted around biobanding and it was pretty solely based around biobanding. So four years down the line, I wanted to get Sean back on and go a little bit deeper into a few other areas. So given his expertise in growth and maturation in a youth population, we had a little chat around considering biological maturation versus chronological age, which I know has been spoken about a lot, but it's great to get an update from an expert, a true expert in Sean. Then we have a little chat around monitoring maturation, whether you've got Uh, endless budget or no budget at all the pros and cons for various different methods and how we can actually use that data then we have a little update on biobanding which is what we spoke about back in august 2017 so it's an absolute joy to get sean back on this episode uh he's such a great guy and i could listen to him all day so a super super interesting episode coming up with sean This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Sean Cumming. 
Sean Cumming, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's been four years since you came on, and no pre- no pressure at all, but the first episode we did together went down an absolute dream, and I'm sure this uh, this will be no different. So welcome back to the podcast. And thank you for the opportunity to come and talk. No, absolute pleasure. So Sean, I know we'd went through your kind of background and whatnot in the first episode, like I say, was, was four years ago, but I'm sure plenty's happened since then. Would you be able to give us a bit of a brief update uh, for anyone that doesn't know who you are? Yeah, so I'm a professor here in uh, Sport and Exercise Sciences in the Department for Health at the University of Bath. And uh, my research focus is upon growth and maturation in the context of sport and exercise science. Uh, Lately, I've been doing a lot of work with various organisations such as the Lawn Tennis Association, uh, Premier League at the FA, with regards to uh, the subject of growth and maturity assessment in young athletes and, uh, you know, how to manage uh, the growth and development in young athletes, particularly as it relates to the adolescent growth spot. Excellent. And we've got, uh, just you mentioned the LTA, we've got a, a finalist in the US Open, a teenager as well. Yeah, she's done very well. Uh, yeah. I believe she may have been part of the cohort as well that Jill Myberg was studying uh, for her PhD when uh, she was uh, uh, collecting data on some of the top uh, tennis players uh, looking at the impact of growth and maturation in tennis. So it was an interesting one because that kind of kick-started a lot of the work that we were doing. Uh, the LTA were one of the first organisations to come to us and say that, look, we think we have some selection biases as it relates to uh, growth and maturity. And uh, it was uh, that work that uh, Jill Myberg led with the uh, LTA, uh, which uh, resulted in a lot of the interest from other sports such as football and gymnastics. And football, and like you say, football and gymnastics had similar, said they had potentially had similar biases with selection. That's yeah, why so you brought you in. The, the biases were very stark in tennis. Uh, So tennis is a sport which demands greater size, uh, speed, power, strength, etc. So that is naturally going to uh, bias towards the early maturing male and early maturing female. And uh, we found selection biases in the top eight in every age group. Uh, And they were kicking in with the girls from the ages of about nine to 10 years of age. And uh, from the boys, it was around 11 to 12 years of age. Uh, these kids were not just taller and heavier, but uh, they were more advanced in terms of their biological maturity. And of course, in a sport such as tennis, that's going to be really important. Every extra inch will give you 5% extra velocity on your serve. And if you're, uh, say, a 12-year-old boy who is biologically 14 or 15, well, you've gone through puberty. You've got that extra muscle mass, strength and power when you're serving. So we tended to find at the top, top level, uh, there was just a, a very high proportion of early maturers and very, very few late maturing kids survived in the system and a similar story in gymnastics gymnastics is a complete opposite uh, of course we see with gymnastics actually is they're looking typically for the late maturing athletes uh so it's almost like they want to have them for as children for as long a period as possible and then obviously when they go through the growth spot there's potential uh, concerns about injury risk for example and of course the young gymnast has to adapt to those rapid changes uh in terms of both size physique functionality and that can cause a lot of challenges at that point of time and so in gymnastics from for certainly Certainly, since we had that big push in Eastern Europe with Eastern European programs, the selection has been very much towards the later developer. And we see similar parallels in uh, ballet and uh, also in diving where they will tend to select for those late maturing individuals. So based on that, are these organisations tapping into the the data to to predict who are the later maturers and selecting 
So if you go back far enough and look at the Eastern European systems, uh, they were screening the athletes at a very early age. And so you know, you're talking about them sitting down with four-year-olds and five-year-olds. And it's quite difficult at that point of time to tell who's early on time or late because they're all children at that point. But one of the things that they did look at was the mothers. Uh, so we know there's a big, strong genetic component to maturity timing. So if mother was a late developer, there's a good likelihood that the daughter is going to be a late developer. So one of the questions they would ask is uh, age at menarche. And so it's the age at which uh, an individual's had their first menstrual cycle uh, start. And uh, so the average age, I think in the UK, it's about 12.6 to 12.8 years and girls uh, so if you had a mother who maybe did not hit you know menarche until 15 or 16 or so which is within the normal ranges at the extreme end but it is still normal then it's likely that their daughters will probably also be later developers too so yeah so that was definitely part of the screening process uh, a very holistic screening process that they were using the eastern europe uh, at that point of time mm-hmm. just just to give us a bit of a, a jumping off point here sean i know that there's going to be we, we've predicted Again, we predicted an hour, but yeah. I bet we could go for five hours talking about this stuff. <laughs> but why? Why? Yeah, absolutely, and diverse as we were talking about before, yes. and linking all this to the the animal kingdom, animal kingdom, which we may uh, may throw <laughs> in there as well if we if we're lucky. Um, so consider considering biological maturation versus chronological age. Yes. Why? Why should why should coaches care? Okay. Well, if you think about uh, the way we organize youth sports, we typically group children by their chronological ages. So we have age groups uh, for uh, competition, we have age groups for training, and uh, even if we're evaluating kids from, say, a talent ID perspective, we'll be using age groups. Now, in most academies, that's a one-year ban, but in some sports, for example, in French rugby, uh, you have a two-year ban. Now, The age group system actually makes a lot of sense. If we want to group kids on attributes that closely follow age, such as cognitive development, uh, uh, experience playing sports, motor skill development, social development, those things are all quite closely tied and associated with age. So age groups is a great way of matching kids in those elements. What doesn't tie in with age perfectly is biological development and within a particular age group we can get huge disparity in terms of the biological ages of the children. Uh, Mandy Johnson showed this when she was working at Manchester United. She would have nine-year-olds some of whom were biologically 12 and a half and some nine-year-olds in exactly the same age group who were like six to seven years of age biologically. So you're talking about five to six years difference. And of course, if you're going to be evaluating a player, then that has a big impact. If you're going to be presenting kids for equitable competition, particularly during adolescence, where that early developer may be close to being fully mature, and that late developer still hasn't even hit the pubertal growth spurt, that's going to have huge implications beyond technical or tactical ability often. And uh, in addition, if we think about this from a training perspective, and I highly encourage people to take a look at a lot of the work that uh, Rodri Lloyd and John Oliver have done in this area, if we're going to be training athletes, we want to make sure that the training stimulus is training content uh, match the underlying physiological changes that are occurring in the child at that point of time to maximize uh, effectiveness of our training but also to ensure safety uh, and the safety uh, is a really important factor because we know certainly with the growth spurt we see this big spike in terms of stress-related injuries severs osgood schlatters these types of injuries kicking in and they tend to follow a a distal to proximal gradient, whereas, you know, you know the legs grow first in children and then the torso, for example. So it's not surprising we see severs kick in around 85% of adult height, Oshkut schlatters around 90 to 91, right at that peak of that growth spot. Whereas, you know, your lower back stuff, your spondylosis, etc., is more likely to present at the end of the growth spurt. 
because different parts of the body are growing at different times. So your growth spurt occurs in your feet before it's in the lower legs, before it's in the torso. So one of the th- biggest successes I think we've had so far in football is the clubs with the systems we set up now can better recognise when those kids are going through those spurts and adjust the training programmes accordingly to reduce things such as injuries or adolescent awkwardness coming through, thus safeguarding the children. And of course, if you just throw the kids into the age groups and provide them a training programme based upon their age, well, some kids it'll be fine, it'll be the appropriate programme, but for the early developer it might not be pushing them hard enough, the late developer might be too much at that point of time. So it's about taking individual variation into consideration. You mentioned, is it, was it French rugby, the example of the two-year ban? Yes. Is there, is there any thought behind that? Uh, I think is there it's any benefit or? to some extent. I think okay. it's, you know, a game such as rugby, you've got to have 15 players and then you're probably going to have bench players as well. And so that's quite a lot of ask. And to get that all from one age group might be challenging if you're living in, say, a rural community. Like I grew up in the Orkney Islands and uh, our age groups for football covered about three years because, <laughs> you know, we cover from a wee village of about 2,000 folk. And uh, so the age range would be quite wide. And of course, the maturity range was gargantuan in some of those age groups. Now, when we looked at the, we've just done a paper actually with the uh, chaps down in uh, the south of France in uh, Toulouse and uh, they looked at the French Academy system or the French junior uh, rugby programs and uh, they were looking at actually a weight grading system similar to what they have in uh, New Zealand to see if that might be a better way of reducing the huge variation in size within the age groups and it was quite effective it was dropping the variation by about 50% in most instances and the variation was absolutely huge I went back actually just last month I was looking at that data the difference between the smallest kid and the tallest kid or the biggest kid uh, within those two-year age bands, the bigger kid was over three times heavier than the smallest kid. Uh, three times? Three times, over three Jeez. times heavier. Wow. Now, you know, In football, I've seen over twice yeah. the size, you know, and you get that. But when you open it up to two-year band, if you've got an oldest kid who was also an early developer and the youngest kid who was also a late developer, then, yeah, you're going to get chalk and cheese there. You're going to get very different sizes in terms of the kids. And, uh, yeah, if you think about that in terms of competitive equity and potential safety as well, uh, the, you know, there, there are concerns there. So when you mention about differentiations on training programs based on um, the, the rate of growth and maturation of these, yep. of these um, youth athletes... Is there any kind of core recommendations that you give or would advise to coaches to kind of create a framework for the alterations based on early maturers and, and late maturers? Yeah. Well, the first for one, safety in yeah. yeah yeah. So the first one is setting up uh, systems of measurement and uh, making sure that you're aware and you're regularly assessing the athlete. So it's not that the athlete suddenly goes into the growth spurt, gets injured, and you're like, oh, crap, they're in the growth spurt. You're predicting to it. Now, this is one of the best benefits, I think, of working with the Premier League. We started with education to begin with. Uh, so we had uh, pretty much uh, practitioners, so it's usually sports scientists and sports medical staff, physios from the clubs coming, getting educated on growth and maturation, how to assess it. One of the things we flagged up to them in these workshops was that this was a period of time where you get the severs, the osgood slatters, the severs, uh, the, the spondylosis, the stress fractures tending to present and to be very aware of it. Uh, and of course, as part of the work that we did with the Premier League, we also set up a, a growth and maturation module within the PMA, which would allow the clubs to track and measure the kids. Now, one of the things that occurred after we'd done that and implemented the system was that 
some of the clubs independently started coming back to us afterwards saying, you know, this is a really useful system because now we can count down to when the kids are going into the growth spot. And what they were doing is they were looking for red flags. Are you in the growth spot? What is your current rate of growth? Is it above seven centimetres, you know, more than we would normally see in childhood? Uh, were the kids showing any signs of adolescent awkwardness? Were the physios flagging up any symptomology? Uh, was their training load particularly high at this point of time? And uh, if they were seeing these red flags, then they would start adjusting the training programs for the kids. And the clubs were coming back to us and saying, look, we think we're starting to get reductions in terms of injuries this year. We haven't had any examples of, say, uh, Osgood Slatters this year, when previously, you know, we had about four or five kids with it. And we think this is working. Now, I was presenting that at the conference in Singapore, and uh, there was a chap there called Jan Willem Tunison. He used to be the movement scientist at Ajax. He's one of the authors of the athletic skills model. And me and Jan were having breakfast the next day. And he says, Sean, you know, we were doing this ages ago in Ajax. He says, we were doing this 10 years ago, this biobanding stuff. And it goes, please tell me more about it. And he said, yeah, we had these three phases for the athletes in the academy. Phase one was what they would refer to as monkey see, monkey do. The kids are going through childhood. There's nothing disruptive in terms of growth. They're really quick at picking up skills and having fun. But all of a sudden you get to this point where they notice the growth spurt kicked in and some of the kids started to struggle at that point of time. They tended to pick up injuries. You might get regressions in performance. And so what they did was with those kids who moved into that zone, they would change about 50% of their training program program. They would reduce the load, the number of games that they were playing in, but it wasn't that they stopped training, they would substitute that training with training which was more developmentally appropriate for them. So a lot of the focus was on lower body strength, core strength, balance, coordination, uh, a lot of stuff on disruption of skills, uh, where they would put them on crash mats, they would be doing ball juggling for example on crash mats. Uh, they would uh, have tension lines out, they'd be doing balancing on the tension lines, they would uh, be put into certain positions where they had to hold a pose and the other kid would be pushing them along the floor and uh, they were having to use their core strength to hold that position and that mobility at that point of time. And uh, the great thing with Jan Velem is he did it in such a fun manner. So it's a lot of small games. Uh, a lot of the games were in sock feet. They took the shoes off so they couldn't do high intensity. And of course, shoes off, it focuses you to work a little bit more on your balance and coordination. And so I said, well, was it effective? And he says, yeah, he says, nobody got injured. He says, uh, in addition, the kids transitioned much, much more effectively at that point of time. And, you know, while we thought they might hate having this and not getting the opportunity to play football, they actually turned up 20 minutes early for the sessions because they enjoyed them so much because Jan was so creative in terms of the way that he worked things. So we were really interested in this because this was somewhat similar to what had been going on with some of the clubs independently in the Premier League. And uh, David Johnson, who had started uh, with me as a PhD student at uh, AFC Bournemouth, was particularly interested in this because he had noticed in his first study that there was this big spike in injuries as the kids went through the growth spot. So we actually implemented Jan's programme over at Bournemouth uh, uh, last season. And what we did is for those kids who were above that 7.2 centimetre growth spot, those kids who were in 88 to 94% of adult stature, so smack in the middle of the growth spot, they had 90 minutes worth of their programme adjusted. So again, a reduction in load, working out in bare feet, reducing accelerations and decelerations, which might put stress on the joints at that point of time. But then again, key things, fundamental movement skills, core strength, mobility, coordination 
And we went back at the end of the season and took a look at the data. Now, the groups which had not had their training programs changed, the pre-growth spurt and the post-growth spurt groups, the injury incidence, the injury burden was exactly the same. But when we looked at the group in the middle where David and Ben Bradley had done their intervention, there was a 70% drop in terms of the injury incidence. 70? 70%. It was okay. incredible that the it completely dipped. It went in the opposite direction of what we where we previously had this spike. We had this dip. These kids were just not getting injured. And then when we looked at the injury burden, it dropped from about 130 days per 1,000 hours exposure to just over one day. So it was absolutely mad. But then again, if you think about it, you know, the system they had at Ajax, they put in place for a long period of time. And developmentally, it makes sense to do that. And, you know, not every athlete is going to get injured as they go through the growth spot. But for a lot of those athletes who might be at risk, it could be quite a good thing. So it's been exciting and we're starting to look at seeing now, can we also apply this in tennis? Because a lot of kids in tennis would naturally get injured as they start to go through the growth spurt. And of course, gymnastics is a classic one for it. And you keep in mind as well that those gymnasts are late developers. They're going through the growth spurt, maybe 15, 16 years of age. 15, 16 year age, you're training a hell of a lot in gymnastics. So it's about, okay, yeah, you have to train, but can we train in maybe some slightly more developmentally sensitive manner uh, to, you know, pick up those kind of potential risk factors and, and better keep the athletes through that point of time. And of course, there's there's some really good research as well just come out from Denmark, from Sinead Holden, that shows that those athletes who do pick up these Osgood-Schlatter uh, type injuries, those growth-related injuries during puberty, is not that they just have this injury and that's it over and they, that's it all over with, etc. These things tend to follow through past growth spot and uh, tend to be problematic. So they're nursing these injuries for quite some period of time. So, yeah, if we can stop that, clear benefit, not just for the coaches and the programmes, but for the athletes as well. And Ajax haven't done bad, have they? Churning out players from no the system. About it. <laughs> this is a great thing. I would highly encourage you to get Jan Willem on as a guest because, you know, Jan Willem has all the videos of everything that they were doing and those types of activities. And in these videos, you'll see the likes of Matthias De Ligt, uh, you know, Danny van der Beek, all those guys going through these types of programmes. And uh, it's quite interesting seeing some of those players as they go through the growth spurt, they do look quite awkward. I remember him saying that one of the players who's eventually been sold for a large amount of money, you would not have invested them in when you saw them in the middle of the growth spurt because you get these dips in performance. And in fact, Megan, Megan Hill, who did her PhD with Southampton and has just graduated, uh, work, she was working very closely with Sam Scott there. They looked over five years worth of data and she found that as the kids go through the growth spurt, the match grades do go down. And then they come back up afterwards. So if you're using match grades to decide whether or not you're going to be contracting a player, it's not just whether they're early on time or late. It's are they in the middle of the growth spot? Because you don't want to pull the trigger on a kid. Because you really haven't got a clue what you're going to see at that point of time. Mm -hmm. So just, just remind me of the growth rate that would flag... Yeah, so in childhood, the growth rate is usually about 5 to 6 centimetres. And it's really quite steady. You'll get little bumps uh, here there. Uh, so five uh, per year, so five year? to six centimetres yep. per year. And then when you look at the growth spurt, uh, you're going to kind of find that anywhere above 7.2 centimetres appears to be one of the sort of uh, key sort of criteria where injury risk tends to ramp up. Now, at the peak of the growth spurt, you're usually looking at about 12, 13 centimetres per year. But in some kids, because the growth spurt's an interesting one, growth is saltatory, so you get this rapid growth and slow down, rapid growth and slow down. So if you measured it regularly enough, you see this massive big spike but of course, if you smooth it out, you see this lovely little curve. And some of those spikes, we see players up to 20 to 22 centimetres per year at the rapid, rapid period of their growth. And of course, there's players such as, you know, Scott McTominay at uh, 
Manchester United were an incredible growth spot. Uh, I think some of the stats you maybe read about it in the newspapers are maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, <laughs> but there's no doubt. It's talking to James Parr, who you know did his PhD with me up at Man United on growth and maturation. There's no doubt that uh, you know some of these athletes will have very kind of rapid growth spots as they go through those processes. So was he a late maturer, Scott? Yes, he was a late developer. Uh, okay. Interesting chatting with uh, James about this because. He, he it was it was kind of just after that kind of growth spot uh, where people really started paying attention to him and starting to see you know this player really has got it and of course we you also see that with examples from the Belgian futures program as well so likes of uh, Kevin de Bruyne uh, there's a really nice article talking about the futures program where they had a chap who was working uh, it's Eric Abrams who worked with the futures program and he says the likes of de Bruyne Mertens Courtois all talented boys, very capable, but you really didn't see the full potential of them until they came through that growth spot. Uh, because, you know, yeah, technically, tactically fantastic, but the physical disadvantages of being a late developer means that often you don't see them really full potential. Uh, but of course, once they've gone through that and the physical differences are taken away, that's when the technical tactical really comes to shine through. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's why some of the late developers are slow burners. <laughs> Would you say the recommendations that you've mentioned about the using football as an example mm-hmm. would be similar in gymnastics and tennis? And by that, I mean the reductions in overall load, like foot with the fundamentals be the, very similar, you know, no matter what the sport or would there be certain nuances within each sport that you would I, I think everybody, and... all those athletes are going to experience the same thing in okay. terms of uh, the growth changes that are going yeah. to be occurring during that point of time. So they're all going to change rapidly in terms of the physique, change in terms of strength, speed, power, etc. But I guess the differences would be that different sports, they're probably going to be experiencing it at different ages. As I said, the gymnasts and particularly the ballet dancers, uh, they are going to experience it relatively late on in their careers. Uh, Misty Copeland, who's one of the prima ballerinas in uh, New York, she didn't hit her growth spurt until about 17, 18 years of age. She was training 30 hours a week at that point of time. She came down with six stress fractures at that point. Uh, so obviously much bigger implications if you're hitting it with an incredibly high load. If you're an early developer, well, you might hit your growth spurt in Bali at the age of 10 or 11, and you may be training 10 hours a week, so it's maybe slightly less of an issue. Uh, tennis was an interesting one because when we, I did a session with the mums and dads of the top eight in every age group with the LTA, and a consistent message we were getting back from them was that kids are picking up injuries as they go through the growth spot. But there's almost this pressure that I think that the mums and dads and the kids feel is to keep up their rankings and, uh, you know, to make sure they get into the right competitions. You've got to train hard. You've got to compete through that period of time. But in order to, to do that, you have to put in the shift and the effort and that load is naturally going to be quite high. And if the athletes are picking up injuries at that point of time, well, we know that injuries predict future injuries. Um, as with Sinead Holden's work in Denmark, those injuries are going to nag and follow through into early adulthood as well. And so it would almost be of benefit, I think, there to say, OK, keep training through the growth spot, but train smarter through the growth spot. Uh, yes, have some competitions, but maybe not excessive amounts of competitions. Be willing to allow your maybe grade to dip or your ranking to dip a little bit by that point of time. But make sure you get the athlete through that period of time as healthy as possible so that when they're through that, yes, you can ramp up the training, etc. And at that point of time, they should be able to uh, go on and be successful afterwards. 
And you've got to keep in mind as well, the majority of young athletes are not going to be professionals, so it's really imperative for us to keep them safe and healthy. When we're comparing early and late maturers, how long does it take early maturer to actually catch up, not only physically, yeah. but, but mentally as well? Ooh, uh, so the, the, the mental one's an interesting one. We'll, we'll start with the physical one yeah, first, yeah. though. So if we're talking about the boys and the girls, uh, the girls are going to be the first ones to go through the growth spurt. The boys are usually about uh, a couple of years in delay in terms of going through the growth spurt. Uh, an early maturing boy could be physically mature at the ages of 15 or 16. Uh, a late maturing boy, it might not be until 21, 22 that they are fully physically mature. And of course, if we're looking at brain development, that's going to go on for even slightly longer than that. And uh, so it's going to take quite a bit of time for them to catch up. I remember chatting with a fellow who was actually one of the UK's top hurdlers. And uh, it was Malcolm, is it Malcolm Arnold, uh, who was his coach up at Team Bath. And we had a placement student working with Malcolm. And uh, you know, I went out, did my placement visit, checking up on the student. And I was just sitting down having a chat with Malcolm. And of course, Malcolm's just a legend in track and field. And I was really interested in asking him about, you know, uh, hurdling and late developers, you know, because you'd assume a late developer with longer legs, shorter torso, more linear frame might be more appropriate in that sport. And so I asked him specifically about that and he was giving me some insight. And then one of his athletes rolled up and uh, he goes, oh yeah, this guy will give you some good insight into it. And uh, he says, yeah, he says, I wasn't physically fully mature until the age of about 21, you know, that I actually stopped growing. And uh, he'd just recently come back from an indoor competition and he'd come about second or third in this big European indoor competition. But he says, you know, coming back, even though I didn't win, I I really felt good about the competition because I'm still pretty light in terms of my physicality. I haven't really put on the lean muscle mass yet. These guys I was competing against, they were physically mature at 17 or 18. They've really bulked up at that point of time. So if you think about it in terms of how much time I've got left to, to benefit, you know, post being mature in terms of bulking up in size, I know that if I'm only just losing them just now, as soon as I address that physicality, I'm going to be kicking their butts later on. So, so it's an interesting one. So there can, can be quite a bit of variance there. Now, with regards to the cognitive maturity and the cognitive development, that is much, much more likely to follow age and experience. And uh, so those are going to be the key factors in determining whether an individual's advanced in those areas. Uh, the, the one aspect of psychology which does follow biological maturation, however, is the emotional changes that occur during puberty. So this is one of the reasons why early maturing boys and early maturing girls are potentially more of a challenge as they go through puberty is because they experience this at a much earlier age. So the changes that occur in terms of drives during puberty, you know, kids become less playful, they become more interested in peer groups, social awareness, social sensitivity, social reinforcement, and risk-taking, all that kind of stuff that occurs during puberty, that kicks in very early for an early maturer. For the girls, it might be 10 or 11. For the boys, it might be, say, 12 or 13. Now, keep in mind that they are still 10-year-olds and 13-year-olds at that point of time. From a cognitive perspective, in terms of cognitive development, they're not that advanced so they're not that bright they don't have those skills yet to regulate those emotions very effectively now a late maturing individual they might experience that at 15 or 16 they're older they're wiser they've seen the peer groups go through it before and it's really not that surprising that when we look at all the health risk behavior smoking drinking sex at early ages for example it's a big cluster of risk behaviors there for the early maturers 
uh, particularly for the girls, we see all those kind of risk behaviours there. And, and it makes sense biologically because they're experiencing those urges and pressures at a much earlier age when they lack the cognitive skills to be able to cope with it. And we have to keep in mind as well is that society plays a role as well because society is going to look at those individuals and go, they're adult, they're more mature, for example, they'll treat them, they'll reinforce them and interact with them in a more mature way. So it's, and, and those types of kids are going to want to hang out with more older, mature people who are naturally going to be engaging in more smoking or drinking or whatever. So it, it's a little bit of combination of the biology and the, and the, the sociocultural things kind of coming together there. But uh, fascinating stuff. And I've done some of my work and research in the area of exercise is kind of picked up on those kind of areas and the social pressures and the psychology behind it. But yeah, it's yeah. a fascinating area. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Sean. Hope you enjoyed part one. So in part two, we have a little refresh on biobanding, which is what we spoke about back in 2017. But lots has happened since then. And biobanding has made its way into various different sports, but is clearly still having a big impact in, in English football. So a really cool part two coming up with Sean. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is the global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military and workplace health. Their annual Human Performance Summit has become a must-attend event for anyone interested in performance analytics and research. The North American Summit will take place on November 5th and 6th at the state-of-the-art UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas, Nevada, which I have actually been to and is an incredible facility. So with the attendance capped at 250 people, the summit provides a unique and intimate forum for live discussion and collaboration between human performance professionals across sport, military and public safety. So this year marks the first online tickets that are available, allowing attendees worldwide to experience the event virtually, which is an incredible offering from the guys at Fusion Sport. So to learn more and purchase tickets to Fusion's North American Human Performance Summit, please visit humanperformancesummit.com and use the code SPORTSMITH10 for a 10% discount. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Output Sports. Output Sports is a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid and reliable athlete assessment. For the first time ever, you can assess metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics and speed and agility, all with a single wearable sensor. 
output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organizations, performance centers, teams, and athletes to make data-driven decisions. The technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at Output Sports where you can schedule a demo. And now back to the interview with Sean. Talk about fascinating areas. It's a little bit of a, a segue into what we were talking about before. And the, I suppose the, the breadth of the impact of this type of research and, and the interest that it generates in not only humans, but in the animal kingdom as well. And I, I just, I don't want to replicate our short conversation beforehand, but I found it fascinating and probably eye-opening to understand where you where you are in terms of your interests in, in this area would you be able to give us a bit of an insight into that yeah so I, the, the area of growth and maturation is a fascinating one because i really didn't do uh, do that much on the subject matter until my phd i had done my undergraduate in psychology at edinburgh and we had a lot of emphasis upon child development there and i found that area fascinating but it was largely focused upon emotional social cognitive development and some motor development as well a lot of stuff in ecological sort of uh, dynamical systems and uh, it was when i went to exeter to do my master's with stuart biddle that stuart had done a lot of work in pediatric populations and i was very interested in the motivation sides of things but it wasn't until i went to Michigan State when I was working with Bob Molina that I was really introduced to the subject and of course everybody grows and everybody matures so we we all have our own stories we can tell about the subject matter and we all have our stories about adolescence and the things that we did and you know they're quite embarrassing many of them as well Uh, we we really didn't understand what the hell was going on at that point of time but when you actually study the science it clarifies everything so clearly which is nice um, so Bob Molina, who I worked with uh, in the States, and I still continue to work very closely with Bob, he's a good friend and colleague, uh, he was just one of those academics who can talk about anything and everything. He was just fascinated in the subject of growth and maturation, whether it be in the animal species, whether it be related to exercise or related to exercise behaviours or drinking or smoking or thriving, the effect of pollution, etc., he was just interested in the subject matter. And I think it's important to read outside of your area too, because it then gives you interest in terms of our insight in terms of how you might better understand growth and maturity and exercise. So when I first started doing it, pretty much everybody who studied growth and maturity was a physiologist or had a background in S&C. So it was lots and lots of really great research, but all from a bio perspective, showing early maturers bigger, stronger, faster. Nobody had really looked at the psychosocial elements of it. And Bob impressed upon me, he says, look, you know, most of the psychologists tend to be a little bit biophobic. Most of the biologists don't understand psychology. There's a gap in the market there for you. If you come into the context of sport and exercise and start looking at the interactions between growth, maturation, psychology and social behaviour, you know, you can do some science. It'll be unique and it'll be innovative. And, uh, you know, I always wanted to do things that other people aren't doing. I wouldn't want to spend my life just testing somebody else's theory of uh, motivation or something like that. I want to try and do something that would be new and fun and innovative. And it might not be the best, but uh, it, it's it's new. And, and that's that's kind of what excites me. And Bob pointed me to go and take a look at uh, developmental psychology and animal psychology to, to understand growth and maturation in those contexts, because there was a lot of fantastic work being done in that area. 
the other thing that's probably given me that interest in animals is that my brother is a, well, he trained in as a marine biologist. He manages salmon farms in the Shetlands for a large Norwegian company. And every time I chat with him, he's very well read in terms of animal science. And every time I chat with him, he always pulls something out from the animal kingdom. <laughs> so I was talking to him about the work I was doing with Siobhan Mitchell uh, with the ballet dancers and talking about how, you know, ballet selects for late maturers. And he goes, yeah, it's the same thing in salmon farming. <laughs> and I goes, oh, come on. And uh, he goes, yeah, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not just the late maturers that we go for. We want uh, late maturers that also grow rapidly. And I goes, okay, well, what's this all about? And he goes, well, think about it. He says, as a salmon farmer, you want to maximize the profit on your product. So you want a big fish. Okay, so you want the thing to grow rapidly. But you don't want it to grow fast. Because as soon as the salmon hits its maturity, it invests all of its effort and energy into becoming reproductive. It gets this massive jaw that sticks out like so. All the colour tends to go from the flesh out to the skin, etc. And he says, if we have salmon that hit maturity, we kind of sell them for nothing but cat food. (laughs) Because the things just don't look nice and the quality of the flesh is poor as well. So what we do in terms of our selective breeding for salmon is we go for salmon that grow very, very fast, but also mature very, very late. So what they're looking for is the biggest possible fish before they actually harvest it. So, of course, they're tracking and monitoring those fish and they're getting the biggest fish possible. And just before they're about to hit puberty, boom, that's when they harvest them so they can maximize their profit. So you see all these little examples uh, out there on on, on different animals and and how they grow and they mature at different effects. And I've been reading more stuff as well about how fish uh, maturity in terms of whether they're early, late or lifespans are also influenced by fishing patterns as well. So if you overfish a certain species, then you'll tend to find that there is a shift towards earlier maturation to try and replenish that species, which appears to occur naturally within the environment. Uh, Really, really fascinating stuff. And of course, the size of the nets has an issue too, because if you have a European law that says that, uh, you know, you've got to have big kind of gill nets, then all the big fish get caught, uh, who tend to be the late maturers. <laughs> and the uh, fish that survive are the early maturers, who are small in nature. And uh, so it's, it's just fascinating stuff. I, I, I could read about the subject for, for ages. Super interesting. Yeah, thanks for that. It uh, definitely gives a bit of um, breadth to the, to the conversations and, yeah. and depth, obviously, but that, that's class. Um, so monitoring maturation, you mentioned it right at the start. Pros and cons of the various methods that we can use out there potentially for people who are listening who have got a lot of budget which isn't to many people but the majority who've got a very limited budget what options have we got and the pros and cons okay so we start with the uh if you've got the budget uh so the most probably objective method for assessing uh maturity and youth is skeletal age so with skeletal age you'll be taking a hand wrist x-ray of the child and uh, you will be you can use a number of protocols so it's a fells protocol grudlich pile there's three versions of the tanner whitehouse method and you can use that to get an estimate of a skeletal age from the child Uh, it's it's complex it requires trained individuals it's expensive Uh, It also involves an exposure towards radiation and I guess the concern with radiation is that if you're going to be exposing a child to radiation there needs to be a good medical rationale to do so. So most clubs will only do that when there's a concern with regards to maybe they haven't got a clue what age the child is. Maybe the child is from a country where they don't collect age and it's really important that they know where the child is to, to understand their development and to for the child's safety or it might be an instance where a child has suddenly got an injury and they think and it might be in the middle of the growth spurt and we might do an assessment there 
Uh, so in, in the United Kingdom, typically we don't find most people using x-rays on, on, unless they uh, are, are, you know, uh, uh, you know, certain particular situations. The amount of uh, radiation actually is quite small. You're talking about the equivalent of being outside for about three hours. You know, you got a lot more taking the team over to play a game in Portugal, for example, and then flying on a plane. Uh, but you have to obviously think about it from a medical rationale in terms of the benefit of the child. Uh, other methods that are starting to be looked at is uh, looking at ultrasound. Now, there were methods that did look at ultrasound, which have been largely kind of poo-pooed. And the major reason being is that you would typically focus only upon the radius and the ulna. And of course, those are probably two of the most variable bones to study in the hand and the wrist. And so the reliability of these methods is not particularly high. There is, however, new methods coming out where they're looking at multiple sites. And from some of the early work we're doing in there, they do appear to be a lot more reliable uh, when you're looking at not just the radius and ulna, but the carpals and the phalanges. So you're getting multiple sites and a little bit more confidence. Uh, but still a lot of work to be done in that area. But the nice thing about those methods is that they don't have the radiation. Uh, but obviously we'll have to wait and see in, in terms of the reliability and validity of those. Uh, if you're not taking those types of methods, the most common other methods would be the somatic maturity indicators. So when we started work with the Premier League, the most common one which was be used was the uh, Mearwald offset method, which looks at predicting the age at which children hit peak height velocity. And so the average age is 13.8 years in boys. It's about 12.1 in girls. And so a kid who hits it at 15 would be a late developer. A kid who hits it at 10 would be an early developer. And it gives you an idea in terms of counting down towards when peak height velocity is going to occur, which is the, the top of the growth spurt. Uh, but it also tells you whether the players in the middle of the growth spurt are, are, are beyond it. Now, while that was a popular method and it's quite easy to implement, uh, Bob Molina's done a number of studies now where he's actually taken longitudinal data and he's looked at the accuracy of the method. And the problem is, is that there is error that changes with age. So if you have lots of young kids, it will over-predict them as early maturers. If you have lots of older kids, it will under-predict them, and therefore they'll all be identified as late maturers. Now, the big issue is, is that those errors are magnified quite largely in the early and late developers. So sometimes you might be off in your prediction by one to two years, which is problematic if you're looking to adjust a training program relative to the kid being in the growth spot. And uh, it's been a bit of a hot potato debate between the various scientists involved with the programs now. And you know all methods have their limitations, but you just need to be very careful if you're using that one. And uh, I think that's perhaps maybe one of the reasons why a lot of the clubs have now shifted and moved towards the percentage of predicted adult stature method, which requires the height measurements, the weight measurements, but the biological parent heights. And the error for that is 2.2 centimetres in boys, which is about one and a half of, of percentage of predicted adult height either way, and uh, about 1.7 centimetres in girls. And so the idea here is that if you have two boys, say, for example, and we know their predicted adult height, we can express their current height as a percentage of that predicted adult height. And so we can tell how close they are to being fully mature or uh, how uh, delayed they are in terms of the maturity. 
And uh, the nice What's thing that about called? this, what 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 methods that called just so people can well. So the the method for the height prediction is called the Kamish Roche method yep. for height prediction. But the actual protocol, which involves all the different steps, was developed by Bob Molina at uh, Michigan State University. Uh, in fact, I was doing my PhD with him. I think it was the first time we ever implemented that whole protocol was during the PhD, and we were looking at it in a combination of both American football players and soccer players at that point of time. Now that method as I said it does have its error but we've been looking at data from Bournemouth and it doesn't appear to have an accentuated error in early on time or late maturing kids uh, so there's not the concerns about the big over exaggerations of the errors with this method uh, the ideal situation though is that you have a method in there but you're you're not just looking at the percentage of adult stature you're also collecting repeated data in terms of heights and weights so you can plot the growth velocity and uh, it's also eyeballing a kid as well if you don't know and understand growth and maturity and that growth occurs first in the feet and then the lower legs and then the upper body and broadening of the shoulders lean mass you can pretty much eyeball a kid and get a pretty good idea of exactly where they are so it's uh it's it's a the more information you can gather on the child definitely the better how does that change with different backgrounds ethnicities yep great question now this has been an interesting one because if we look at racial differences there are racial differences but you've got to keep in mind is that there is more variation within the races than there is between the races. Okay. Right. So uh, I remember chatting with Mandy Johnson uh, with uh, her kids up there at United. And uh, she was saying from all the x-rays she had done, and that's not just United, that's lots of different clubs and organizations she was working with. She tended to find that the African Caribbean boys were usually about a year in advance of the white boys in terms of their skeletal maturity. And there is some evidence to support that in, uh, you know, just general population as well, uh, that uh, th there may be these racial differences, but again, more variation within the races than between. So, for example, she said, you know, that uh, Danny Welbeck, for example, at United was a very late developer, as was Jesse Lingard up at United, very, very late developer. And uh, so, yeah, huge variation within. Uh, on average, you're typically going to be finding that... Uh, your African Caribbean African kids are probably more likely to be slightly in advance. Uh, your Hispanic kids, uh, for kids from say south southern parts of Spain, Portugal, be slightly more advanced in terms of your your northern Europeans. Uh, with Asians as well, they tend to be slightly in advance of whites as well, uh, but not huge differences. Probably the biggest factor of anything is probably environment uh, rather than genetics. So. Uh, a really good example of this comes from South Africa, from some of Noel Cameron's work. Noel Cameron's an esteemed professor up at Loughborough, who's done a, uh, one of the leading researchers in growth and maturity in the United Kingdom. And uh, he was studying uh, black boys growing up in, and black girls growing up in some of the uh, townships in South Africa. Um, this was really fascinating because in that instance with the boys, he found that the black boys in South Africa were actually maturing in delay of the white boys, which is the opposite of what we would see up here in the United Kingdom. Uh, but again, a lot of that was probably down to thriving and sustenance, you know, getting a lack of nutrition, growing up in a poor environment, etc. is going to delay your maturation. The girls were the same uh, in terms of the white girls and the black girls, suggesting that when it comes to the sex, women are definitely the hardier sex in terms of being less likely to have their genetic profile or genetic blueprint being influenced by environmental factors. And again, that goes with, uh, if you look at a lot of, sort of epigenetic type of stuff, I think mutations are much, much more likely to be occurring in males than they are in females, and we're much, much more susceptible to environmental factors. 
there's also some really good stuff looking at kids growing at an altitude in, in poor areas in South America uh, where you've got these kids and they've all of a sudden moved to Florida and they're in Florida in an environment where it's nice and warm, it's not at altitude and within a couple of generations they've caught up in terms of maturation, in terms of the maturing at the same rate as other kids. So yeah, uh, race and ethnicity does have an impact but probably not as big as an impact as a lot of people would like to think. One thing we talked about last time we spoke four or five years ago was biobanding and that was something that you mentioned right at the start has that progressed in terms of the uptake it's it's had from a, a football example was what mm-hmm. we used before, so we'll, we'll use that again. Has that become more prevalent in, in football academies with people using biobanding or is it still the the Southamptons <laughs> and the Bournemouths that seem to be, there, there's seem still, to be on board? There's still certain clubs who, have, uh, who really sort of prioritise it, but we definitely had many more clubs who have started looking at it and experimenting with it. I think there's probably about 20 plus clubs I've spoken to across the various leagues in England and Scotland who have started experimenting with the biobanding. And what's been really nice is that they're advancing the approaches that they're taking. You know, when we first started off, we hadn't blinking clue what on earth was going to happen. <laughs> we, we didn't know whether it would be useful or, or, or not, but we, we started to find out that there appeared to be some benefits and other researchers such as Chris Towson up at Hull, uh, Will Abbott down at Bournemouth, you know, Ben Bradley down at uh, uh, Bournemouth, also Will Abbott down at Brighton, Ben Bradley has started looking into this. And uh, there's also Michael Roman down at Switzerland. And what's fascinating is we're starting to get different independent groups looking at it using different methods, different technologies, but it seems to be coming through with a consistent message that this is really challenging the early developers by giving more opportunity for the late developers and just almost like flipping the age group system on its head that all of a sudden those early developers are getting pushed and late developers are getting a slightly different challenge as well. But what's been great, as I said, is that some of those clubs are really starting to take the practice to the next level. So if you look at Southampton, they were relying on their psychology support. Uh, Amy down at Southampton, Amy Price uh, does uh, individual workshops for the early developers and the late developers. So with the early developers, they're going to go up playing against older, smarter boys, less time on the ball. They're going to be struggling and failing. So they're all taught about how to deal with that because you can't just throw them into it and hope that they get out with it, which we did in the first place. Uh, If you can prepare them for that challenge, it makes it a lot easier. Uh, In addition, if you look at the late developers, they're expected to take on the role of leading, communicating, organizing, mentoring, etc. They've been borrowing heavily from a lot of work by Vygotsky, uh, looking at mixed-age classrooms in terms of how to benefit the older and younger kids, which is basically what biobanding is to some extent. You've got some older and some younger kids, but they're all of a similar physical development and using those kind of systems to better optimize the effectiveness of the biobanding. And I was chatting with Des Ryan recently about some of the things he was looking to implement uh, at Arsenal before he left. And of course, they've got some great folk down there, Poddy Roche, Perry Stewart, for example, who are incredibly switched on to the growth and maturity. And they were taking a very systematic approach to it in terms of gathering everybody around, identifying strengths and weaknesses for each player before they biobanded them, discussing who should be in which particular bands, identifying a particular goal, whether it be physical, psychosocial, social, technical, etc., for that biobanded phase, work with the kids for a week in advance, structure the programs to help them work on those elements they're meant to be tested on in the biobanding. Then you have your tournament and you evaluate afterwards. 
And this is great, you know, because you've got some incredibly switched on practitioners there who, you know, are thinking about things I would never think about at all. And that's, it makes sense because, you know, I'm not developing athletes at all. I'm not working at the coal face with these folk. They understand the athletes and the systems much, much more effectively and how to implement these systems more effectively. I just kind of have some fun in terms of getting along to work alongside them and pick up and learn and maybe give them some advice here and there in terms of how to do things. But it's been really incredible to see how much the clubs have advanced the kind of concept to make it much more effective and efficient so would would it be that regular monitoring that is helping these practitioners understand which band the the players go in and and how did that how are they deciding how early sorry how late uh, an athlete goes into the early and then vice versa how are they making the cut points is what so in terms of the cut points we've been working with we've been going with five percent bands normally so uh, that was kind of just a band which we felt was about half of the variance of what we would see in normal age group competitions. Uh, but it also fit quite neatly in terms of we could see 80 to 85. Well, these are the kids who are all kind of pre-pubertal. They haven't kicked off in the growth spurt yet. We then have a group of kids, 85 to 90. Those are kids just starting to go in the growth spurt. So they are stretching, getting a little bit awkward, but nobody looks like, you know, uh, um, you know, nobody's muscle bound at that point of time. Nobody's had their sort of peak weight velocity kick in. Uh, I remember watching Arsenal Southampton in a Biobanda game. We had the ninety to we had the eighty five to nineties on one field, and then you look over to the other field. It was the ninety to ninety fives, and of course the ninety to ninety fives. Those were big kids. These yeah, looked like young men. And the difference between those kids and these kids over here was just like night and day. And of course, if you think about you know Poddy's down there in charge of the strength and conditioning programs at Arsenal, those kids were fit. Those kids were very very strong. And uh, of course, kids of different ages, etc. But it was it was a very much different game played at a much higher pace with more physicality. Once you get to the ninety to ninety fives, uh, but when it comes down to it, you know you can put a kid in a band, but you you should consider the kid holistically in terms of okay, well, do they have the confidence to go up yet? Uh, do they have an emotional maturity to be able to play at that level or the technical capacity? So I remember one of the uh, games we had with, uh, it was one of the coaches at Villa. They had a kid who was just on that 90 to 95 band. I think he was like 90.2 or something like that. And the coach saw him and he said within the first minute, you could tell the kid was it was depth. So he just bumped him back down to the band below what was appropriate. So there's really no hard, fast rules. You have to stick with it for certain types of things. The idea is just to generally restrict that variance to focus more upon a game that's technical and tactical rather than being physically oriented or a situation where you've got just one kid who you know, just takes over the entire game. So. And you mentioned Amy's work down at Southampton, but from mm-hmm. a psychological point of view, there's got to be huge benefits from, from both sides. Like you say, the encouragement of leadership for the late maturing guys yeah. um, and the understanding of where they're at from the... Yeah, early maturing guys and girls, yeah. of course. Yeah. So it's an interesting one because the psychology aspects of it were one of the sort of big criticisms we got when we first started looking at bio banding. A lot of sports psychologists jumped in immediately saying, oh, this is inappropriate. You can't do this. You know, kids are going to be at different levels in terms of psychology. You need to look at that. And yeah, that's true. We do need to consider the psychology of it. And uh, there was a lot of concern as well about having players play down and saying, okay, to this kid, this is going to create stigma for a kid. And in fact, I remember being at one of the FA Advanced Youth Award sessions and it was, uh, actually, this has happened twice and it's been coaches from exactly the same club each time. I won't name the club, but this club had a policy that they would not play players down. If you're good enough, you could play in your own age group. And that was that. 
And uh, the argument was that asking a player to play down would create social stigma for the child and uh, it would be terrible. And uh, the coaches for the club were sitting there going, this is absolutely bananas. He says, I understand, you know, there's a benefit to the player going down, but my club won't let me do this. And the problem is we're losing some of our best players because of this. You know, they're going off to other clubs and getting picked up by them. And uh, it was one of the coaches from Tottenham who stuck up his hand at that point of time. And he says, look, two of the boys who've made it into our first team played down pretty much through most of their academy because that was what was right for them. He says, what you've got to do is to identify it as a, a particular pathway. And he said, you know, if I was asking a kid to play down, I would name that player and say, oh, you're on the so-and-so pathway. He said, United could do the same thing. You're on the Jesse Lingard pathway. Jesse mm-hmm. played down two age groups, I think, at some point, And he oh, was wow. still one of the smallest players at that yeah. point. Uh, or you could say that. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain pathway and stuff. So almost identifying and recognising it as a successful pathway. Now, one of the things that's kind of uh, happened since then as well in terms of kind of getting over this is to educate the players in terms of what you expect them to do when they play up and play down and explain the purpose of it. If you explain the purpose, then people are more likely to take it on. Uh, one of the best stories I got back from a bio-banning event was from John McEwen at Everton. And they had a boy who was a late developer, the most talented boy, he said, in the entire academy. And they asked him to play down with the wee boys. And he came back after a day and said, John, what the hell am I doing here? This is a challenge. <laughs> and uh, John says, look, you're looking at the wrong challenge. He says, yes, you're a technically tactically fantastic player, but you're not a leader. And for you to play for Everton, you need to be a leader. Go down and play with those younger boys. Lead them, organise them, motivate them, communicate with them. That's what I'm looking to get you out of the session. As soon as the kid twigged that, then he was fantastic. He understood what it was that he was doing. And if you look at all the education research, looking at mixed-age classrooms, for example, that is what the older kids do. They consolidate their learning through teaching and supporting and mentoring the younger ones. And it's not that you just say, okay, well, it's bio-banding versus the age group, one or the other. That late developer is still going to get those optimal challenges when they're playing in their age group. So it's not a case that all of a sudden you ask them to play down and their career's over because they're not getting challenged. <laughs> the key thing is giving them a diversity of challenge. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Well, I'm going to wrap up there, Sean, because I've taken just over an hour of your time. And, but it's been a pleasure to speak to you again four That's years down the line. I, I look back to see what date it was, and I couldn't believe it was 2017. Obviously, last year was a write-off, or last 18 <laughs> months was a write-off, so it's been two and a half years. But um, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, uh, where's the best place social media as well yeah so uh, my social media I, I've, I've uh, you've got a Twitter got, account since last time I, I have joined Twitter yes <laughs> I was getting a lot of pressure but I don't know uh, my, my grad, I've got a lot of good graduate students that I'm working with just now and uh, I felt it was probably a good idea to get their stuff out there and promote the work that they're doing and to get onto Twitter as well. And I was also aware there was a lot of nonsense out there on Twitter about growth and maturation as well. A lot of folk talking about relative age effects and confusing it with maturity. And I was like, Christ, if we're going to get this bloody message across that relative age and maturity are not one and the same, I'm going to have to get out there and actually explain a lot of these concepts because there's a lot of a lot of folk out there who still haven't got a clue about it. And uh, so, yeah, I felt that I should probably jump on. So I am on uh, Twitter now. I think it's Sean underscore PhD. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how it gave me that name. I just logged <laughs> up and all of a sudden that was my name. So uh, I don't know if I change it, then people might not be able to find me. So, yeah. so if you look at at Sean underscore PhD, uh, you'll find me. But there's a lot of other good people on Twitter who do growth and maturity research as well. So definitely take a look at uh, their work as well. Uh, I have a ResearchGate page as well. So ResearchGate is kind of like a Facebook for mm-hmm. academics where you can put up your latest papers and uh, you can uh, put up posts, etc. And um, 
yeah, I've put up a lot of the articles that have been written about our research, the videos, etc. that have been done, some of the animations as well, and the bio banding, they're all up there. I need to update that because I haven't updated that for about a year or so. But uh, that's what, moving on to Twitter does for you. So, uh, <laughs> Spend all your time fighting Google. about, yeah, but yeah, fighting about growth and maturation. <laughs> yeah, but even if you just Google, you know, uh, bio banding, things like that, you'll find lots of interesting articles out there weighing up the pros and the cons of it, etc. But yeah, it's been fun. Uh, we're starting to get a lot more international uptake now. So we've got France looking at it, Germany looking at it, Switzerland. Uh, so it's going to be fun to start to see the, the research come out from, from other people looking at it as well. Happy days. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And yeah, appreciate you you coming on for a part two four years down the line. But have a have a great day. Stick around. We'll have a little chat afterwards. But officially, I'll I'll let you go. That's lovely. Thanks again for the opportunity, Rob. Pleasure. Cheers, Cheers Sean. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. As I've said a couple of times through these intros and in the middle of this episode, it was an absolute joy to get Sean back on. I could listen to him all day talk about youth development and growth and maturation. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Fusion Sport, Omega Wave and Output Sports for sponsoring this episode today. As I say every week, but I truly mean it, I've got some really, really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks from the UK, from uh, Qatar, from Canada, and from over in the States as well. So make sure you tune in next week, and I will speak to you then.